story you are about to hear is true. Attention, all true. He's alive. When I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, we would often go to the Jersey Shore on weekends, especially in the summer. It was great to swim in the water, and I had a raft that I'd ride the waves on. It was a lot of fun. I was always a big fan of the movie Jaws. I had seen it as a young kid, even when I probably wasn't supposed to. And it really stuck with me. I became obsessed with sharks. I'd read about them in books, any special on TV, especially on PBS, I would watch. So... While I was always at the shore, I always in the back of my head had the sinking suspicion that a shark was going to eat me. Of course, that never happened. But at the same time, I was always on the lookout for them and always expected to see a fin on the horizon. Then one summer, when I was 12 years old, my family announced that they would actually be staying at the shore for over a week. We rented a cottage somewhere near Point Pleasant, New Jersey, and for 10 days... I had access to the beach. The first few days I swam like crazy, got really sunburned, then it kind of turned into a tan. I was living the life. Then one of my sister's boyfriends at the time decided to bring down his fishing pole and showed me how to fish in the surf. I'd never done it before. It was a lot of fun, but it gave you a lot of time to just sort of stare at the horizon. And I became obsessed with looking for a fin sticking out of the water. I would sit in this beach chair with my pole stuck into a tube waiting to catch anything. I never caught one thing, although everyone around me did. I'm kind of glad I didn't because I wouldn't know what to do with it once I had dragged it in. Instead, I was focused on the horizon, looking for that shark. Day after day passed. I'd go to the boardwalk during the day. I would swim in the morning. It was pretty nice. But I ended my day every day sitting on the shore watching the horizon hoping not to get a bite on my fishing pole, waiting to see a shark. We were supposed to leave on a Sunday, and that Saturday night, I sat there, kind of depressed. The sun was going down. It was a great shore day. And then I saw something. Now, I can't tell you that it was a shark, but it looked like a fin just coming out of the water just beyond where the waves start to form. I'm no expert. Perhaps it was a dolphin, but in my head, it was a shark. And I yelled to the guy next to me, Look, shark! And he stopped what he was doing, looked out there, and then he said to me, Oh yeah, there are sharks all over these waters. That made me so happy. I can't even tell you. Because in my head, that confirmed to me that I spotted a shark. I've always looked at the horizon ever since whenever I'm at the shore, searching for those fins. On today's show, we're going to talk about a movie that terrified me and yet intrigued me at the same time. Jaws. It's the reason I watch Shark Week every year. It's the reason I love every shark movie that comes out, and also the reason that whenever I get into ocean water that's a little too deep, I start freaking out. We'll talk about the novel that inspired the movie, we'll talk about the production of the movie, we'll talk about its critical success, and the sequels that it would spawn. Should be a great shark-filled episode, so without further ado, let's start the show.
In the early 1970s, Doubleday editor Tom Congdon had read some articles by the author Peter Benchley and invited him to lunch to discuss some ideas for books. Benchley proposed some nonfiction work, and Congdon really wasn't interested. Then Benchley brought up an idea he had for a book about a shark terrorizing a beach resort. Congdon was very intrigued, and Benchley would go on to write a page in his office. On the spot, Benchley had been thinking about this idea for a long time. In his own words, he said, I wanted to come up with a story about a shark that attacks people, and then what would happen if it came in and wouldn't go away. It had been in his brain for a while. In 64, he had read a news story about fishermen who caught a great white shark weighing 4,500 pounds off the beaches of Long Island. He'd have to wait a while, and the story would have time to grow in his head, bringing in inspirations from other shark attack stories, like the great Jersey Shore attacks of 1916, where several people were killed by what is believed to be one shark. Benjali went home and wrote the first hundred pages very quickly, and received a thousand dollar check for doing so. Congdon said that the first five pages were perfect, but then the story took an almost humorous turn, and... He didn't believe that that was the tone that the book should take, and he asked Benchley to rewrite them. Benchley worked from 71 to 73, subsisting on $7,500 in advance money. He would write Jaws in a room above a furnace company in Pennington, New Jersey. Then in the summer, he went to a converted turkey coop in Stonington, Connecticut to finish writing. After many rewrites, Benchley delivered his final draft on January of 1973. The title of the book was Not Decided until right before the book went to print. Benchley spent the months writing the book actually thinking about what he would call it and thought many of the titles he had come up with were way too pretentious. Among them were Stillness in the Water and Leviathan Rising. He also had other ideas like The Jaws of Death and The Jaws of the Leviathan. really like that Leviathan line. I kind of do too. But he thought that those were too melodramatic or weird. According to Benchley, the book did not have a title until about 20 minutes before the book went to press. The writer discussed the problem of no title with his editor Tom Congdon. According to Benchley, we cannot agree on a word that we like, let alone a title that we like. In fact, the only word that even means anything, that even says anything, is Jaws. Call the book Jaws, he said. What does it mean, I said. I don't know, but it's short, it fits on a jacket, and it may work. He said, okay, we'll call the thing Jaws. Jaws would be published in February of 1974 and would go on to great success, staying on the bestseller list for 44 weeks. Domestically, it would sell 9.5 million copies. It would be on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks and eventually would go on to sell 20 million copies in all. Interestingly enough, the reception for the book was mixed, and in a weird twist, people found that they were sympathizing with the shark. Amongst those people were Michael Rogers of Rolling Stone magazine, and the man who would eventually go on to direct the movie version of the book, Steven Spielberg. There's a lot of controversy about the book itself because it portrays sharks in a very negative light. In the years following the book's publication, Benchley began to feel really bad about that very thing, and he became an ardent ocean conservationist. 
In an article published in National Geographic at the turn of the millennium, Benchley wrote, Considering the knowledge accumulated about sharks in the last 25 years, I couldn't possibly write Jaws today. Not in good conscience, anyway. Back then, it was generally accepted that great white sharks ate people by choice. Now we know that almost every attack on a human is an accident. When the book first came out, Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, who were both film producers at Universal Pictures, heard about the book. Brown heard about it in the fiction department of Cosmo Magazine, which was at the time edited by his wife. The producers each read it overnight and agreed the next morning that it was one of the most exciting books they had read in a long time, but they were unsure how they would make it into a film. Brown would later say that if he had read the book twice, he never would have made the film because of the difficulties in executing most of the sequences. However, the love for the book really pushed them to want to make this movie. There's a fun story that says that Zanuck, Brown, and friends would go on and buy hundreds of copies of Jaws and send it to all their friends in the California area which pushed the book onto California's bestseller list, which is a pretty clever way of building anticipation for a movie if you got the cash to spend on a lot of books. Zanuck and Brown would purchase the film rights to the novel for $150,000, which at the time was pretty big haul for Benchley. But when you consider the success of the book and further success of the movie, it's a pretty small sum. So now that Zanuck and Brown had the movie in hand. They originally planned to hire Dick Richards, who was a filmmaker of considerable experience to direct the movie. However, after meeting with Richards, they kind of grew irritated with Richards' vision of directing a movie about a whale, obviously drawing parallels between Jaws and Moby Dick. So Richards would be dropped, and Zanuck and Brown would go on to hire an unproven talent at the time, Steven Spielberg. Spielberg wanted to take the basic concept of the novel and remove many of Benchley's subplots that he thought were getting in the way of the main story. And we'll cover some of the differences between the novel and the movie. But a big thing that he removed that surprised me when I would read the novel after having seen the movie was an affair between Ellen Brody, the chief's wife, and Matt Hooper, Richard Dreyfuss's character. Spielberg did this because he thought it compromised the sense of brotherhood that had developed between the three men when they were on the Orca. When the story rights were purchased, the producers had guaranteed the author that he would have the right to write the first draft of the screenplay, and eventually would go on to write three drafts before deciding to bow out of the project. They would eventually bring on Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Howard Sackler, and he would do an uncredited rewrite. Then, Spielberg sent the script to Carl Gottlieb, asking him to take a look at it. Gottlieb would rewrite most of the scenes during principal photography, and John Milius would polish up the dialogue. Spielberg has claimed that he prepared his own draft, although it's unclear if other screen artists pulled from that material. The most controversial part of the writing of the movie was Quint's monologue about the USS Indianapolis. Spielberg has said that it was actually a collaboration between John Milius, Howard Sackler, and the actor Robert Shaw. Gottlieb would later give primary credit to Shaw, downplaying Milius's contribution, and we'll talk a little bit about that iconic scene later and how it came to be. Location shooting for the movie occurred on the island of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, 
and it was chosen because the ocean around it would have a sandy bottom while still far enough out to sea to not see land. This helped the problematic mechanical shark to operate smoothly while still providing fairly realistic location. You go inside the cage. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Sharks in the water. Our shark. The film had a storied, troubled shoot and went considerably over budget. Originally, the movie was slated to have a $4 million budget, but eventually would more than double and cost $9 million to make. The problems were numerous. Shooting at sea led to many delays, weather delays, unwanted sailboats drifting into the frame, cameras getting soaked, and even problems with boats sinking with actors on board. Of course, the mechanical shark frequently malfunctioned due to its hydraulic innards being corroded by the seawater. There were three mechanical sharks who were collectively nicknamed Bruce after Spielberg, the lawyer at the time. Eventually, the disgruntled crew members would come up with a new nickname for the shark. Instead of Jaws, they called it Flaws. In a lot of ways, these delays actually helped the film. Originally, Spielberg wanted to show this shark a lot more, but because he couldn't, he was forced to restrain his vision. And in a lot of those scenes, we're forced to fill in what's going on with our imagination. And this forced restraint and use of imagination is widely thought to have increased the suspense of those scenes, giving it Hitchcockian tones. The footage of real sharks would be shot by Ron and Valerie Taylor in the waters off Australia, with a little person acting in a miniature shark cage to create the illusion that the shark was enormous. This movie marks a tradition in Spielberg's directing style, and he decided to not be present when they filmed the last scene in the movie where the shark explodes. He did this because he thought the crew was planning to throw him into the water on the last day, and he didn't want to give them the satisfaction. Since then, Spielberg has been absent during the filming of the final scene in every movie he has done. Does this sound familiar? Of course it does. It has become as well known as the plot of the movie itself. It's the music from the movie Jaws. John Williams, who has done many, many great movie projects over the years, contributed the film score, which was ranked sixth on AFI's 100 best film scores of all time. The main shark theme that I played is an alternating pattern of two notes, E and F, and has become a classic piece of suspense music. The soundtrack was performed by tuba player Tommy Johnson. When asked by Johnson why the melody was written in such a high register and not played on a more appropriate instrument like the French horn, Williams responded that he wanted it to sound a little threatening. And what's more threatening than the tuba? When the piece was first played for Spielberg, he supposedly laughed at Williams thinking it was a joke. Spielberg would later say that without the score, the film would only have been half as successful, and I have to agree. When that music starts playing and you don't even see the shark, you're almost ready to jump out of your seat. There have been many interpretations over the years as to why the theme of Jaws is so effective. Some have said that the two-note expression mimics the shark's heartbeat and gets to the core of the idea of predator versus prey, which might sound a little far-fetched, but I rather like it. Probably the most important thing that happens with the soundtrack of the film 
is that the audience throughout the film is conditioned to associate that music with the shark. And happily, it's never used as a red herring. So one only needs to play the little dun-dun-dun-dun, and everyone knows something's about to happen. It would be something that had been done before and would, of course, be mimicked widely afterwards, regardless of how effective it is or what the meaning behind the music is. It is probably one of the most recognizable music scores ever put into a film. You're going to need a bigger boat. What is a great movie without a great cast? And Jaws has a great cast. As Chief Martin Brody, you had Roy Scheider. But Scheider wasn't the only one up for the role. Charlton Heston was considered for the role, and he would be so annoyed by his rejection for the role of Brody that he made disparaging comments about Spielberg and vowed never to work with him again. He would even turn down a role in Spielberg's offer at the role of General Stilwell in the failed comedy 1941. Other people who were up for the role were Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottoms, John Voight, Robert Duvall, and Jan Michael Vincent. Scheider would become interested in the project after overhearing a screenwriter and Spielberg at a party talking about how they would have a shark jumping onto a boat. That piqued his interest and got him interested in the role, and he would soon land it. One of my favorite actors in this movie, and many other people's, is Robert Shaw, who played Quint. The role of Quint was originally offered to actors Lee Marvin and Sterling Hayden, but they both passed. Zanuck and Brown had just finished working on a movie with Robert Shaw called The Sting and suggested him to Spielberg as a possible quint. Of course, he would take the role and run with it, making it probably his most iconic role. We all know the big introduction to quint is when he messes with the chalkboard in the back of the room of Jaws. But according to Spielberg, his original idea for introducing quint was to have him in a local movie theater watching the movie Moby Dick from 1956, the Gregory Peck version. And he would be laughing at an absurd level, driving people out of the theater, sort of like the scene in Cape Fear, where Robert De Niro is just laughing out loud when he's watching, I believe, Problem Child. Unfortunately, Gregory Peck owned a piece of Moby Dick and didn't want it used because he was never happy with his performance and didn't want people seeing it again. So Spielberg had to cut the scene. Now, there's some great tension in the movie between Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. And that tension wasn't just on film, it was off film. Supposedly, Shaw and Dreyfuss would argue all the time. Good for us, because that tension resulted in some great scenes between Hooper and Quint in the movie. Richard Dreyfuss was originally the first choice to play Matt Hooper. But he would pass on the role. But then... He had finished a movie called The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and during pre-screenings of the movie, things did not look good for it. Thinking that after that movie came out, he might not be able to get another role, he called Spielberg immediately and accepted the role. Lorraine Gary would play Ellen Brody in the movie, and although Victoria Principal was considered for the role of Ellen, Lorraine was cast and was actually the first cast member cast for Jaws. Rounding out the cast, you had Murray Hamilton as Mayor Larry Vaughn, who I read was the only person that Spielberg could picture in that role. Carl Gottlieb played Ben Meadows. Jeffrey C. Kramer played Deputy Leonard Hendricks. Susan Backlany played Chrissy Watkins. The author, Peter Benchley, had a cameo as a television news reporter. Jeffrey Voorhees played Alex Kintner. 
Lee Fierro played Mrs. Kintner. Jonathan Philly played Tom Cassidy. Jay Mello played Sean Brody. Chris Rebello would play Michael Brody. And Craig Kinsbury played Ben Gardner. As I mentioned, the shark in the movie would be called Flaws because of all the problems they had with it. In addition, Spielberg gave it a special name, calling it the Great White Turd whenever he got really frustrated during filming with the mechanical beast. There's a funny story, and I don't know how true it is, that during pre-production, Spielberg, accompanied by his friends Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and John Milius, visited the effect shop where the shark was being constructed. Lucas, being curious, put his head into the mouth of the shark to see how it worked. And as a joke, Milius and Spielberg went to the controls and made the jaws clamp down on Lucas's head. Unfortunately, it wouldn't open. I guess you could say it's prophetic of the problems they would later have, and they needed to really work hard to get Lucas's head free. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. are dealing with here is a perfect engine uh an eating machine we're not only gonna have to close the beach we're gonna have to hire somebody to kill the shark bad fish but i'll catch him and kill him did you hear your father out of the water now this shark swallow you whole you're gonna need a bigger boat that's a 20 footer 25 three tons on him
none of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. I'm going to go into the plot of the movie here. So if you've seen Jaws before, no problem. If you haven't seen Jaws, you might want to pause it, go watch it, or fast forward through the next few minutes. The film begins late at night on fictional Amity Island, New England. A young woman leaves the beach to go skinny dipping. There she has whipped around by unseen forces, who we later find out is a shark. The next morning, Amity's new police chief, Martin Brody, who had just taken the job, is notified that a woman is missing. Brody and his deputy find her mutilated remains washed up on the shore. The Emmy in the town informs them that the victim's death was due to shark attack. Brody attempts to close the beach, but he is overruled by the town's mayor, who fears that a shark attack will ruin the summer tourist season. The Emmy goes back on what he said earlier and tells Brody that it was probably a boating accident. Brody reluctantly goes along with this. A little bit later, a young boy named Alex is brutally killed by a shark while swimming in a crowded beach on an inflatable raft, and his mother places a $3,000 bounty on the animal, sparking a shark-hunting frenzy. This attracts the attention of a local professional shark hunter named Quint. In a famous scene, Quint interrupts the town meeting to offer his services, but he demands $10,000. Brody brings in a shark specialist from the Oceanographic Institute named Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, who conducts an autopsy on the victim's remains and concludes she was killed by a shark. A big shark is eventually caught by local fishermen, and the town believes the mystery is solved and that everyone's happy. But... Hooper doesn't believe it. The bite radius just doesn't match. So they go out to look around. They find the half-sunken wreckage of a local fisherman named Ben Gardner. And Hooper goes into the water and finds a shark tooth. And that tooth belongs to a great white, not the shark that had been caught. Sadly, Hooper drops the tooth because he's alarmed at Ben Gardner's head appearing in front of him. And when they go and try to bring the evidence to the mayor... He says it's not enough, and he refuses to close the beach. By 4th of July, the beaches are all covered in tourists, and another man is killed, and Brody's oldest son is almost killed. This forces the mayor to actually believe everything, and they hire Quint. Quint takes Brody and Hooper on his fishing boat, the Orca, to kill the man-eater. The shark makes its appearance, and the battle begins. Then there's this great scene when night falls on the boat where the three men bond. And Quint tells the tale of when he was in the military aboard the USS Indianapolis, which is a famous boat that sank and a lot of men were killed by sharks. The speech was initially conceived by the playwright Howard Sackler and was lengthened by the screenwriter John Milius. It would be later rewritten by Robert Shaw. Now, Shaw was a method actor, but also was a bit of a drinker, and he had said to Spielberg that he was going to have a few drinks before filming his scene. And Spielberg thought about it and thought, well, the guy's method, maybe he's going to bring something to it. And the story goes that Shaw went up there and started giving this heartfelt speech, and then it degenerated into personal things. And the entire 
scene that they had filmed was ruined. Later that night, Shaw called Spielberg and apologized profusely for what he'd done and said that in the morning he'd like another try. And the next day, the very first take that they filmed is what you see on screen. Shaw might have had his problems, but he was an expert actor who could bring the goods when he needed to. After this, the shark reappears, the ship gets damaged, and Quinn's so obsessed with taking down the shark that he destroys the radio in the boat. He's starting to become very Ahab-like. When everything seems to be failing, Hooper decides to don his scuba gear and get into a shark-proof cage and thinks that he could stab the shark with a spear filled with strychnine. The shark rips the cage apart, causing Hooper to lose the spear, and he flees to the seabed. The shark then gets very aggressive and actually throws itself onto the back of the boat. Quint slowly slides toward the shark, trying to kill it with his knife, but before he could do any damage, he is devoured by the shark. Brody retreats to the cabin as the boat starts going, and he throws a pressurized air tank into the shark's mouth. As the boat is sinking, Brody grabs a rifle, and just as the shark is moving toward it, he's firing and firing, and then, bam, he hits the air tank, and it explodes, killing the shark. As the shark drifts toward the seabed, Hooper reappears, and the two make a raft together and kick their way back toward Amity Island, singing a very famous song. Show me the way to go great movie, but it was also a pretty good novel. I read it most recently on a beach trip in California, uh, sitting on a beach, watching the ocean, looking for those fins, and it had been years since I'd read it, so I was really surprised at some of the major differences between the two works. Here are some of the major points of difference. In the movie, Brody and Hooper are close friends, but in the novel, Hooper's really obnoxious and has an affair with Brody's wife. The two in the novel become enemies, and Brody's battle with growing old and his envy of Hooper is a big subplot of the book, which makes you not feel so bad when, in the novel, Hooper is actually killed by the shark when he goes underneath the water in the cage. In the film, he survives. In the book, Quinn is not killed by the shark in the same way he is in the film. In the novel, instead of being eaten, his foot is caught in a rope that is attached to the shark, and he is pulled underwater and drowns. The movie also has a much more climactic ending, but in the novel, it's a much more mellow death of the shark, but still pretty poignant. As the orca sinks, Brody is left alone in the water. Everybody else is dead, and as he moves toward him, it starts slowing down, and Brody can do nothing but accept the fact that he's about to die. But when the shark is just inches away from him, it dies from the hard-fought battle it's gone through over the last few days. The novel also develops Ellen Brody to a much greater degree. We find out that Brody and his wife are not New Yorkers who've moved to Amity recently, but instead that Brody is a native, and his wife is a former and wealthier summer person who came to the island. And the reason she has an affair is that although she seems to be content with her marriage, she still yearns for the trappings of her former life. And when Hooper comes along, and she used to date his older brother, she's reminded of that former life. Also in the book, there's a subplot involving Mayor Vaughn, who owes money to organized crime figures. 
and that leads to his desire to keep the beaches open longer. The movie removes this subplot, but perhaps we can read subtext into the extreme nervousness of Mayor Vaughn in the movie. We are here on the beach where a giant shark has just eaten a girl swimmer. Well, Mr. Jaws, how was it? Jaws was a first in movie distribution. It would be the first movie to receive what we would call now a wide release. It opened nationwide on hundreds of screens simultaneously, coupled with a huge national marketing campaign, which was at the time unheard of. It used to be that movies would be released into a smaller round of theaters, and as popularity grew, they would release it to more and more and more theaters. This would lead to what we now call the summer blockbuster, and almost every movie that's released in the summer gets this sort of treatment. When Jaws was released on June 20th, 1975, it opened at 465 theaters, a huge number at the time. On July 25th, the movie got an even wider release, this time to 675 theaters. This was the largest simultaneous distribution of a film in motion picture history at that time. During the first weekend of wide release, it grossed more than $7 million and was the top grosser for the following five weeks. During its entire run in theaters, the film beat the $89 million domestic record of the reigning box office champion, The Exorcist, and became the first film to reach the $100 million mark in U.S. box office. Jaws would go on to gross more than $470 million worldwide, and that is $1.9 billion in today's money, and was the highest grossing box office film until Star Wars debuted two years later. Jaws and Star Wars are considered to have marked the beginning of the new business model in American filmmaking. The home movie market was just taking off at the time, and the first Laserdisc title marketed in North America was the MCA DiscoVision release of Jaws in 1978. A second Laserdisc was released in 1991, and it was the first time a movie was released in widescreen format. But the Laserdiscs kept marching on, and there would be a final Laserdisc release under the MCA Universal Video Signature Collection imprint. This release was an elaborate box set, which had deleted scenes, outtakes, a two-hour documentary on the making of the film, a copy of the book, and a CD of the music. I think I remember selling these when I worked in a video store. Jaws was first released on DVD in 2000 for the film's 25th anniversary. It would feature a 50-minute documentary on the making of the film, which was an edited-down version of the one on the Laserdisc release. It had interviews with Spielberg, Scheider... Dreyfus, Benchley, and other cast and crew members. Other extras included the deleted scenes, outtakes, trailers, and storyboards. In 2005, on the 30th anniversary of the film's release, Jaws was re-released on DVD. This time it included the full two-hour documentary. It also contained a previously unavailable interview with Spielberg that was conducted on the set of Jaws in, in 1974. Jaws would spawn three sequels, which failed to match the success of the original. Their combined gross barely covers half of what the original made. Spielberg was unavailable to do a sequel. He was working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Richard Dreyfuss at the time. So Jaws 2 was directed by Jeanette Swark and Roy Scheider, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton reprised their roles from the original film. 
the next film, Jaws 3D, which I remember seeing in theaters and was very excited about, was directed by Joe Alves. Sadly, the effects did not transfer well to television or home video, and it was just released on home video as Jaws 3. Dennis Quaid played Michael Brody in the movie, and he was joined by Louis Gossett Jr. Jaws the Revenge was directed by Joseph Sargent, and it featured the return of Lorraine Gary and is considered one of the worst movies ever made. While all three sequels would go on to make a profit at the box office, critics and audiences are basically in agreement that these are horrible films and do not hold a candle to the original. Jaws was a great movie that came out at a great time. I don't think you could make a movie as terrifying today, especially with people's knowledge of sharks and probably what would have been an overuse of CGI ruining the tension. Every Halloween and probably every summer, I watch the movie because I think it works well in both seasons, and I encourage everyone else to do the same. What's in the ocean? What's in the ocean? Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. If you like the art that accompanies every one of these podcasts, it's done by the artist Christopher Tupa, who is the official illustrator of the Retroist podcast. You can see more of Christopher's work on the website at the Art of the Retroist podcast or at his website, ctupa.com. That's ctupa.com. Christopher and I have also been working on a side project called The Bike Patrol. If you're interested in checking it out, you can find it at thebikepatrol.net. A lot of the original music used in this podcast was created by our very own Peachy. You can see a lot of Peachy's work on the website. If you have some music needs, you can contact Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. I hope everyone had a great holiday season and a happy new year and that you're all ready for 2010. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Salt and magnesium, bromine and iodine and other minerals. Ladies. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.